This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Two cards this week. Andre Dawson, outfielder, Chicago Cubs. And Andre Dawson, all-star, card number 401. This was a request by one of our youngest listeners. Matt, did you know that the youths are listening to the 1988 Tops I, podcast? I had no idea. I thought only only if stuck in the car while driving across the country while dad is is forcing them to listen is what I had figured. We're So we're basically like the Billy Joel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, this was a request from listener Andrew, who recently had his ninth birthday. So happy ninth birthday, Andrew. He asked his dad, Ryan, to make this request of the Hawk. Andrew wanted us to talk about Andre Dawson because he says that he's an automatic home run in RBI baseball. And so we will check in with Brian in the RBI corner later on to verify the veracity of that statement. But thank you, Andrew, for listening. And thank you for suggesting one of the greatest players of my childhood growing up in Chicago. Andre has gone on to an interesting, perhaps unexpected post-playing career and has a a family connection with Matt and a past guest of this program. Andre Dawson's Sabre bio is by Dan Didonia, who we will lean on again in the future for the 1988 Tops Heine Monish card. Sorry, I meant the Tony Gwynn, Tony Gwynn card. Dan also did the Heine Manish and Tony Gwynn bios on Sabre. Wonderful. So let's go to the front of 500. I'm pulling that up on the Jumbotron right now. This is a big card. This is a big man. Great-looking card. Andre Dawson, right-handed hitter. He's just put one right back up the middle. He looks huge in this card. He takes up so much of the picture, but he also is thin. Like I, If I remember that Dawson just had these big, broad shoulders, but kind of a, a smaller lower body. So in this picture, you can kind of see he... He's a, clearly a big guy, but a great athlete, and he looks great in the pinstripes here. And that hack, that's what I remember about Andre Dawson, that every swing was like a lumberjack. <laughs> like He's chopping down a tree here and that intense stare back at the pitcher. But yeah, this is just a an iconic Andre Dawson image. He is determined and strong in that picture. Also love that the bat, that the barrel of the bat is right over the sea and cubs. We love that perspective of the bat covering up the title. But now let's go to the back of 500, and we see Andre Dawson, 6'3", 195, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Expos in the 11th round of 1975, born July 10th, 1954 in Miami, Florida, with a home in Miami, Florida. Miami. Welcome to Miami. The 44th largest city in the United States, ninth largest metro area, named for the Miami people who once inhabited the area. The tribe lived around Lake Miami, now Lake Okeechobee, and Miami meant big water in the local language. This tribe had no cultural relationship with the Miami people of the Great Lakes region. The Tequesta people lived in the area for nearly 2,000 years before contact with Europeans, and the city of Miami was incorporated in 1896. 
it grew from about 1,600 people at the turn of the 20th century to around 250,000 by the time of Dawson's birth, now up around 450,000. Andre was the oldest of eight kids, and as the oldest, Andre said that his mom was more like a sibling. Andre often had to care for his siblings, uh, and as his father was not always around, he grew up in kind of a rough area in, in Miami, and his grandmother was a huge influence on his life, helping him stay out of trouble and stay out of drugs and, and crime that were rampant in, in his neighborhood. His grandmother, Eunice, was often called Mama, and she stressed the importance of education to Andre. He also had an uncle who gave him a nickname that would stick with him forever. Andre would go to practice fielding with a men's league team in Miami. His uncle saw him fielding a ball, and he said other kids would shy away from the ball, but Andre attacked the ball like a hawk. Another story is that that same uncle called him the hawk because of his eye in the batter's box. Either way, a great nickname that stuck with him that he's embraced and that I know Chicago Cubs fans embraced when he was here. Dawson went to Southwest Miami High. Other famous Southwest Miami alumni, Charlie McCoy, Grammy-winning country music harmonica player and director of the Talking Heads concert film masterpiece Stop Making Sense, and another movie featuring a psycho killer, The Silence of the Lambs, Jonathan Demme. While Andre was at Southwest Miami, he played football and baseball. 6'3", 195, that's, that's built for football. And he was a free safety playing football. That sport almost brought his athletic dreams to an end. In a game against North Miami, Dawson playing on defense. An opposing receiver blocks Dawson's teammate into him. The teammate's helmet hits Andre in the knee. He said his knee felt like jello and he couldn't stand. His coaches said, just a strained ligament, just go home, sleep it off, you'll be fine. He said he couldn't sleep. It felt like his leg was on fire, and the next morning his mother took him to the hospital. He had torn cartilage and ligaments in his knee, and this was the first of many knee surgeries. And he had that surgery before he even graduated high school. Despite the injury, he's Invited to a Kansas City Royals Academy tryout. He's one of 60 players at the tryout. He was one of only a handful invited back for the final session. Andre said that he was lucky that they didn't select him because his grandmother maybe wouldn't have let him go play for the Royals. She wanted him to go to college. He didn't end up having to disobey her. The Royals didn't make him an offer because his 60-yard dash speed was too slow because he was wearing a knee brace from that surgery. So knowing what we know about Andre Dawson later in his career with the Expos, this is a guy with great speed, great range in the outfield. The Royals didn't make him an offer because they didn't trust that his knee would heal, and they missed out on an amazing athlete. So he ends up following Mama's advice and goes to Florida A&M. He had wanted to go to the University of Miami because he grew up three blocks away from the U, but they didn't offer him any scholarships or any other assistance. Now, Florida A&M is a historically black college in Tallahassee. The coach was Pop Kittles, who coached for 24 years, including 1988 tops players Hal McRae and Vince Coleman. And Hawk's uncle, Theodore Taylor, went to FAMU, and he had played in the minors for Pittsburgh in the 1960s. And Pop Kittles offers Andre a partial scholarship. Basically, he was a walk-on, but he impressed enough that they offered him a partial scholarship. By the end of the year, he's starting in center field and got a full scholarship. A&M was at this point a D2 school, 
But they did play some big schools. They played Miami, who around this time was a really good college baseball program. And they played them a few times during Andre's time. And Andre was always keyed up for these because he felt a little bit miffed by Miami's not offering him a scholarship. FAMU won three of four games against the Hurricanes, including a doubleheader sweep when Andre was a freshman. He said that one felt really good. Andre was great for the FAMU Rattlers, but he flew under the radar due to the school's stature as a D2 school. He was 10th in D2 in slugging as a sophomore, earning second-team all-conference. He hit 352 as a junior, earning all-conference first-team as a junior. He led his team as a sophomore and junior in hits, doubles, home runs, and RBIs. In 2019, he was inducted into the College Baseball Hall of Fame for his college career. During his junior season in 1975 at FAMU, he was playing a scrimmage against Gulf Coast Junior College. The Expos had drafted a couple players from Gulf Coast, and their scout, Mel Didier, had stopped by to check in and see what was going on in the area. And Didier said that Dawson had one of the quickest bats he had ever seen, along with good speed and a great arm. And in his scouting report, he said he had a bat as quick as Henry Aaron. And so because of that, Didier didn't tell anybody else about Dawson. He thought, this guy is going to fly under the radar. He also said that a lot of teams didn't know that Dawson was eligible for the draft. They maybe didn't know what year he was in college, thought that he was a sophomore, but he was actually a junior. It was kind of a confusing story where I'm pretty sure that everybody at FAMU knew that Dawson was a junior, but maybe none of the pro scouts had even asked him what year he was in school. So the Expos invite Dawson to a tryout. Mostly they're trying to assess another prospect, Clint Hurdle, who went on to be the Rockies and Pirates manager, and they were interested in taking Hurdle in the first round. But instead, Dawson steals the show. Maybe as evidenced by the picture on the front of this card where it looks like Andre is hitting the ball directly at the pitcher, he did that in this tryout, and he knocked the pitcher out of the game. The pitcher had to be carried (laughs) off the field. Afterwards, Didier told Dawson to let him know if any other teams contacted him. Dawson said some other teams maybe came out to watch the team, but nobody reached out. Nobody told him that they were interested. So on draft day, Didier was thinking about taking Dawson as high as the second round, but he also knew that nobody else had reached out and nobody else probably had Dawson on their board. So he waited and waited. His fellow scouts are going crazy. They see this this name that they all know is an amazing player. Finally, in the 11th round, they took Dawson with the 250th pick in the draft. Didier said, if I had let him go somewhere else, I would have never lived it down. I'm telling you right now, the other scouts wanted to kill me. Everybody in this Expos room knew that they had a future star on their hands, and Dawson didn't seem to mind that he was picked with the 250th pick in the draft. The Expos asked him if he wanted to go back to school. Dawson said it was a no-brainer. This is his opportunity. Let's get this done. Let's just get it rolling. And roll he did. He only played 186 minor league games. He spent one year in Lethbridge, Alberta, in rookie ball. Then he split a season between Quebec and AA and Denver AAA. He had 330 that first season and combined with 353 and 28 homers between AA and AAA. And on September 11th, 1976, he got called up after just that very short time in the minors. And 
That's good, David, because we now have 21 seasons of Major League Baseball to cover. We have nine more pages of notes, so we gotta we got to zip through this here. It's going to be a long <laughs> one. It felt like a long one his first year, too. That first season, he joined a team in the Expos that lost 107 games. Dawson was young. He didn't immediately light the league on fire. He played 24 games, hit 235. While the team was bad, they were putting some pieces together that would make them better for the late 70s, early 80s. Gary Carter was there. Tony Perez was getting up in age, but was at first base and still hitting well. They had Steve Rogers as the staff ace, and Ellis Valentine was also establishing himself in the outfield. So going into 1977, you have Andre's first full season. The team improves, and it's hard not to when you have 107 losses the prior year. They won 75 games thanks to that young core, and Dick Williams made Andre Dawson the starting center fielder. He hit 282, 19 homers, 65 RBIs, 21 stolen bases. He also played a very good center field and won National League Rookie of the Year. In 1978, the team is still slightly under 500, but Dawson had the first of many 2020 seasons hitting 25 home runs and stealing 28 bases. He led the National League in assists in center field in 1978 and was second in putouts. Just was a great center fielder. Had outstanding range, a great arm. He was often in the top five and put outs, assists, range, and fielding runs saved. Particularly in those early years in Montreal, as he aged, his range slowed a little bit. But at this point, the Expos started a run in 1979 of competitive seasons, finishing over 500 every season through 1983. And in that stretch, Dawson put together an outstanding run of his own. He averaged 296, 24 homers, 32 steals over that five-season stretch. He got MVP votes in each season. 1980, he gets his first of six straight gold gloves. From 80 to 83, he averaged averaged 7.2 wins above replacement. That's near MVP level every season for those four seasons. And that included the strike-shortened season of 1981. He was valued at 7.5 wins above replacement in only 104 games that year. He also made his first All-Star game in 1981, but ended up finishing second to Mike Schmidt in MVP voting. But that excellence helped bring the Expos finally to the playoffs in 1981. And at this point, the Expos also had All-Stars in Tim Raines and Gary Carter. They finished second in the NL East in the first half of the season, but they won the second half of the season, and that put them into the playoffs at the end of 1981. And in the NLDS, they played the defending champ Phillies. Dawson hit 300, went 6-for-20 with a triple as the Expos won the series in five games. But then in the NLCS against the Dodgers, Dawson had a more difficult time, hitting only 150 in a five-game series lost to the eventual World Series champs. And unfortunately, the Expos would never make the playoffs again. The Hawk continued his great play. He made the All-Star game in 1982 and 1983. 1983 was his best season at the plate as an Expo, hitting 299 with 32 homers, 25 steals, and 113 RBIs. He was also named Sporting News Player of the Year and second in MVP voting, this time to Dale Murphy. He's having a great run of form, and the Expos were getting popular too. These Expos teams drew big crowds. In 1983, they drew 2.3 million. That was third in the National League in 1983, and that was a team that finished only two games over 500. They were regularly drawing good crowds, and I think as we talked about in the Tim Wallach episode, 
when the team was good, people in Montreal cared about these expos. And when they knew that the team cared about the city, it drew people to the to the games. 1984 was a down year for Dawson. The turf in Olympic Stadium was starting to take a toll on his knees. He was moved to right field in an effort to limit the ground that he had to cover. And he proceeded to win two more gold gloves in 1984 and 1985. He still had some range and his arm was still strong, but his bat began to fall off a bit. His average dropped to 248. And in 1985, he hit 255. Both of those seasons saw Dawson miss some playing time playing 138 and 139 games. He was going into the final year of his contract, 1986. He turns 32 in the middle of that season. He was really hoping for a big year to get a big contract in the offseason. He ends up missing 30-plus games with a hamstring injury, but he was back to form at the plate. He hit 284 with 20 homers, 18 steals, and he finished his 11th season with Montreal. At this point, he holds team records in basically everything. Games, at-bats, runs, hits, doubles, triples, home runs, RBIs, extra base hits, total bases, and steals. All those records were broken afterwards, but at this point in time, he was the club's all-time great. Right up there with Gary Carter, but Dawson held so many records that he was just a legend in Montreal. He'd already been a Rookie of the Year, three-time Top 10 MVP finisher, three-time All-Star, six-time Gold Glove winner. So he gets a big payout, right? Well, you would think so. 1987, it's time for free agency. And lo and behold, he got no offers. Not a single team offered Andre Dawson a contract. <laughs> Except the Expos, because they knew that they didn't have to compete with anybody. So they offered him two years and $2 million. He was already making over a million dollars. So this was a pay cut that they offered him. Dawson was insulted. He's arguably the best player in Expos history. He gave everything for his team, tearing up his knees in the process, and they just totally disrespected him. And as it turned out, an arbitrator later determined that there was collusion amongst owners to drive down free agent prices, so it wasn't a mystery why no other team was making an offer, so he couldn't negotiate with the Expos because he didn't have another offer. So he ends up actually just showing up at Cubs spring training. And at this point, he'd had eight knee surgeries. He knew the Cubs played on natural grass at Wrigley, no concrete that was going to punish his knees. They also played day games, and Dawson hit 40 points better for his career in day games, 302 with a 537 slugging. His OPS was 884, 140 points better than it during night games. He was just a much better player during the day. There was a lot to offer Dawson in Chicago, and so he just shows up and According to his agent, on March 2nd, they told the Cubs Andre would sign for whatever salary terms the Cubs management said was fair and appropriate. Our offer was unconditional, and we will, of course, honor our commitment. So on this blank contract, the Cubs wrote $500,000, add 150000 if he avoided the disabled list before the All-Star break, and 50000 for making the All-Star team. I don't know if there was an MVP clause in there. <laughs> but that's a significant pay cut. But Dawson took a bet on himself. He knew what kind of player he was. And he also, if he had taken the route that Tim Raines took, he would have ended up sitting out until May. And he would have ended up playing in Montreal, which was destroying his knees. So he ends up taking this bet, and his production on the field would hopefully get him a big payday in 1988. The Cubs end up getting him for far less than market value, 
But Dawson was happy, saying, I had taken back control of my own life. He told the Tribune, I think I'm going to like it in Chicago. Based on these cards, it paid off because Dawson ended up having the best year of his career. We go to 401, the all-star card. And let's look at the front of 401. We talked about this recently with Tim Wallach and the bright yellow. I think it did Tim Wallach some favors because it really like accentuated the powder blue Expos colors. In this case, I don't think it's a flattering look for Andre Dawson. Plus, he's got an enormous hat on. It's a big hat. He's also wearing like an old t-shirt from the gym underneath his warm-up jersey. Um, I don't remember him having this much kind of scruff. He often had a mustache, but not that much. Like That's a lot of 5 o'clock shadow. It just seems like they took an outtake picture here. It's an okay card. He's also got a little bit of a a little bit of a mullet going on. But the back of 401 is where we see the impact that Dawson had after signing with the Cubs. 137 runs batted in to lead the league in 1987. And the fun fact on the bottom that Dawson was National League Player of the Month for August 1987. <laughs> <laughs> Great job. He set the Cub mark for home runs in August with 15 home runs in that single month. His 49 home runs and 137 RBIs in 1987 were career highs and topped the National League. Of course, RBI is a team stat. Depends more on the guys on base in front of you. But for Dawson, the other guys on his team weren't great. This is a last place team. You know, of course, he had Ryan Sandberg. He had Sean Dunstan. There are some good players on this team, but... It was a last place team. Offensively, they were pretty average. And so while RBI can be an overrated stat and definitely was in the 80s, this is a pretty impressive number considering how far ahead he was of the second place finisher. 14 RBIs ahead of second place Tim Wallach for the Expos. He was healthy. He was happy. He hit for the cycle on April 29th that year. Through July 7th in 1987, he had 24 home runs, 74 RBIs, and was hitting 297. So just a crushing first half of the season. And he'd only missed four games. So he was well on target to make his contract demands. The Cubs were also over 500 at this point, well behind the National League East leaders, but still competitive. We use that date July 7th because it's notable in Dawson's career. And that was the date that he was hit in the face by the Padres' Eric Schau. The Cubs had taken six of the first seven games against the Padres this season, and there was a little bit of bad blood between the teams. But in his career prior to 1987, Dawson had struggled against Schau. He'd gone three for 30, all singles. But in games in May, he hit a homer off Eric Schau. Then he comes up to bat on July 7th, his first at bat, and he hit a huge home run to left field. The pitch. There's a drive! Way back! It might be! It is! Another home run for Dawson! And that is 24th of the year. His 76 run batted in. Listen to this crowd! So Dawson comes up again in the third. And something that we should note is that Andre Dawson, in his time in Montreal led the league in hit-by-pitches multiple times. His stance was really close into the plate. He's big, crowding the plate, and leaning in. Perhaps Shao was upset because Dawson had hit a home run, 
Or maybe it was because two batters earlier, Paul Nochi had hit one of his three career home runs. <laughs> but Dawson is up around the plate, and this pitch was different. This wasn't a body. This wasn't an arm that was hit. This was up and in directly at Dawson's face. Uh, Eric threw a pitch, uh, breaking ball down and away, and his next pitch um, hit me just uh, above uh, the left lip up and near the cheek area. Coming into this year, Dawson just had not done much at all against this fellow. A lifetime average of 091, three out of 33. Look out! Dawson is hit by the pitch. Oh, he got hit. Dawson hit by the pitch. It sailed up and in. Might have got it up. And Dawson is down. He did. I think he was beaned by that ball. And now Sutcliffe comes out. He's after Shao. Brock grabs Sutcliffe, but now both benches empty as John Fierro tends to Andre. The ball deflected a little bit off of his arm, but it still opened a huge gash in his cheek. After he got hit, Dawson is on the ground motionless for a long time in this video. But the mound still got charged. Rick Sutcliffe, all six foot seven of Rick Sutcliffe, ran at Shaw from the dugout. John Cruck grabbed him, probably preventing Sutcliffe from just demolishing Eric Shaw. The bench is clear. Dawson is bleeding. He said he was in and out of consciousness. Finally, when he got up, the crowd and his teammates all breathed a sigh of relief. And then you see Dawson realize how much blood is coming from his face. And he takes off after Eric Shaw. Luckily for Eric, he is pushed into the dugout by an umpire before Dawson could get him. Dawson had 21 stitches in his face. He said a surgeon stitched the wound from the inside, and so it left little visible scarring. He said that it kind of blended it in with his mustache. Oddly, Dawson and Sutcliffe were tossed from the game. Manny Trio was also ejected for throwing his sunglasses case onto the field. <laughs> I've, I've never heard of an ejection due to something with an accessory. Yeah, where did he keep his sunglasses case in the, in the dugout? Uh, later in the game, Greg Maddox hit Benito Santiago, earning himself an ejection along with the manager. All in all, seven Cubs were ejected. But somehow Shao wasn't officially ejected. He was said to be injured in the incident, so he could not return to the game. Scott Sanderson ended up getting the win in this game. He had tried to retaliate by hitting Tony Gwynn, but Gwynn avoided multiple inside pitches to draw a walk. So Sanderson didn't get ejected, ends up getting the win. Shao later wrote an apology letter, but Dawson didn't accept it. He said he felt that the beaning was intentional. He just refused to accept that apology, and I think that his teammates stood by him that this was headhunting. Well, shockingly, even after getting 21 stitches, Dawson only missed two games due to the incident, so didn't go on the disabled list and thus got that bonus from his contract. He started the All-Star game that year, went one for three with a double, also participated in the home run derby in Oakland against Mark McGuire, George Bell, and 1988 Topps podcast favorite, Ozzie Virgil. Dawson hit four home runs in the home run derby. Ozzie Virgil hit two. Bell and McGuire hit one apiece. How so many Dawson, the, home runs were hit in this year's home run derby? I feel like they hit like hundreds. hundreds. Al, <laughs> Albert Pujols hit a hundred home runs, I feel like, this year. Yeah, this He won with I, four. Albert, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, was Albert Pujols in the home run derby in 1988? <laughs> 
Uh, maybe, maybe. I think in, a, in another episode, we'll go to a home run derby where the winner had one home run. Incredible. Just incredible. The things that we had to watch when we were children. What passed for entertainment in 1987, a four-home run victory in a home run derby. Pathetic. Well, the second half of the season, his average dropped a bit to 272, but he hit 25 more home runs, giving him 49 for the year. And that was the second highest total in Cubs history at the time, behind only Hack Wilson's 56. His 137 RBIs led the majors and is the 10th all-time in Cubs history. It really meant a lot to him to reach this success. He dedicated the season to his grandmother, Eunice, who passed away early in the season. The Cubs, for their part, finished sixth in the NL East, nine games under 500. But Dawson was named National League MVP. We've talked about this MVP vote, I think, in our very first Eric Davis episode, because he maybe should have won it instead of Andre Dawson. Dawson got 11 of 24 first place votes. The Cardinals won the NL East. Ozzie Smith had a great year, hitting over 300, playing his usual outstanding defense. He finished second with nine first place votes, but he was left off of three ballots altogether. His Cardinals teammate, Jack Clark, took three of the first place votes and might have won the MVP if he hadn't missed 30 games due to injury. Dawson is valued at 4.0 wins above replacement. He had the third lowest on-base percentage of any MVP winner. But this was the rabbit ball year, and people were blinded by the home runs. He hit 49 homers. That was a huge number at the time. Tony Gwynn hit 370, led the league in batting, and wins above replacement. He finished eighth in voting. Eric Davis hit 37 homers, stole 50 bases, and finished ninth. Dawson had these big homers, big RBI totals. Probably a lot of those folks who voted for him in, in those second-place finishes felt bad and just said, this is a great story. With all the injury history, with the contract nonsense, it was a compelling story, and everybody liked Andre Dawson. I'll also say he, he won a gold glove this year. So even with all those knee injuries, he was still playing great defense. There's a highlight from the season of him gunning down Mitch Webster at third base that just shows the athleticism and strength of Andre Dawson in that strong arm. So it wasn't necessarily the greatest MVP season, and a lot of people, I think, call it one of the worst MVP decisions, but it's Andre Dawson. Just because Dawson was given the award doesn't mean that these other performances weren't great, and while he may not have led the league in wins above replacement, those big numbers in home runs and RBIs did earn him a spot in RBI baseball. So now we go to the RBI corner with Brian. And we are back in the RBI corner. Welcome back, Brian, to the show. And this week, we're talking about Andre Dawson. Thanks for having me. Andre Dawson is on the NL All-Star team in RBI Baseball. If you'll recall, there are eight regular teams in RBI Baseball, the playoff teams from 86 and 87, plus the two All-Star teams. We covered the NL All-Star team briefly in the Benito Santiago episode. Now, the question often comes up, of these two teams, of these two All-Star teams, which one is the best? My preference is for the NL All-Star team. They've got power up and down the lineup. They have good hitting and good pitching. And in particular, they have players like Andre Dawson, who are just a tremendous power hitter. We've also got Eric Davis, Mike Schmidt, Pedro Guerrero, Tim Raines, just a ton of stars. 
They're a lot like Boston is of the regular teams in that they have a ton of power but a ton of right-handed bats. But they also have better pitching than teams like Boston or Detroit that have a great offense. As I said in the Benito Santiago episode, they're so good that in some cases it's maybe a little bit cheap to, to use them because they're clearly the best team if you stack all of these teams side by side. Now how about Andre Dawson as a player? Andre Dawson is great. He has the single best power in all of RBI baseball. In this game, you have 10 teams. You have the eight regulars and four bench players. That's 120 players, and he's number one. He's also the cleanup hitter on what's probably the strongest lineup in the game. So that gives you some sense of Andre Dawson's stature back in 1987, 1988 when this game came out. Andre Dawson at that point is the cleanup hitter on the best team with the best power in a game that covers pretty much all of baseball through the all-star teams. So he was a big star in real life, and he was also a big star in RBA baseball. One side note here is, number one, RBA baseball has no mustaches, which is really disappointing because we know Andre Dawson had a great mustache across this era. And there's also no ability to charge the mound. You know, we the famous incident where Eric Shaw beans Andre Dawson, and they get this huge bench-clearing brawl, and Rick Sutcliffe, who is also in RBI baseball, comes running out and is going after Eric Shaw. That, that cannot be recreated in RBI baseball because you can't have a bench-clearing brawl. What's interesting about this is in this era you actually could in a game called Bases Loaded. Back when I was growing up, there were three primary Nintendo baseball games that somebody had. You had to have one of the three. It was RBI Baseball. It was a game called MLB that had licensed the teams themselves. And then you had Bases Loaded. And Bases Loaded probably had the best graphics of all, outside of the fact that they had a detached uh, catcher's mitt, this disembodied mitt that would track the baseball. It's quite comical to go back and see. Maybe not the best gameplay, but there was a way that if you beamed the best player, you would end up with this brawl and a player would get ejected, which is just insane to think about. I went back and did a little bit of research into this. I know this is the RBI segment, but I think people who play RBI baseball are probably interested in bases loaded. And from a timing standpoint, it seems unlikely that that Andre Dawson beaning scenario is what inspired the programmers to put this into the game. I thought that might be the case, given when Bases Loaded came out. But in fact, there was a Japanese version of Bases Loaded that was released a year earlier, right around the time of the Dawson beaning incident. So it probably wasn't that incident that inspired the brawl in Bases Loaded. And that actually occurs, I think, if you hit the best player. So it's even more reason to think like, oh, maybe this is, this is what caused them to do this. But no, while you can have this brawl and bases loaded, it doesn't appear to be brought on by Eric Shaw beating Andre Dawson. No fights in RBI baseball, just the ones amongst your friends. That's correct. You, you can recreate in your own home those sorts of incidents, even if you can't on the screen. Now, I saw from the research you pulled up that the Japanese version of Bases Loaded had brawls in 1987. Do you think this is a case of the Japanese just releasing the cutting-edge innovations to their home market before exporting it to Americans. That seems right. Um, you know, if you go buy a video game emulator online, and I'm not encouraging anyone to do this because I don't want to be um, aiding and abetting them and violating copyright laws, but if you were to do so, you will see Japanese versions of a lot of these Nintendo games, and you'll see stuff that was that was in the market well before uh, you would have had it available in the U.S. And some of those games are actually a little bit more fun. Sometimes the challenge is that you can't always read the uh, read the on-screen text, but they can be very fun to play. So it could be that the Japanese just actually knew that this was coming, that Andre Dawson was going to break out in 1987, hit 49 home runs, win MVP award for a team that ultimately didn't win very many games, and get beamed in the process. And as a consequence, they figured there would be 
ahead of the curve by putting into the game at this time. The listener, Andrew, who requested this card said that Dawson is an automatic home run. Can you verify that? There's no such thing as an automatic home run in RBI, especially if you're playing against someone who knows how to pitch against certain hitters. So you can work them inside, you can work them outside, you can change up speeds, you can do things to throw them off balance. And that makes it difficult to square up the ball and hit it out of the park. But if you're playing against the computer and you know you're likely to get a a fat pitch to hit, Andre Dawson is as close to an automatic home run as anyone in the game. You'd put him, Reggie Jackson, maybe a couple of other players in that category, but there's no discussing who would be an automatic home run without discussing Andre Dawson. Well, Brian, we have a lot of different segments on this show, but anytime we know that you'll be on with RBI Baseball, we know that's an automatic home run. So thanks for joining us again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to the next time. Nineteen eighty-eight was another good year for Andre Dawson. He was rewarded with a three-year deal worth more than six million dollars, so a large improvement from that free agent contract of five hundred k. His power was down, but so it was for everyone else in the league as well. He made the All-Star team again and hit three hundred three, twenty-four home runs, and seventy-nine RBIs. He won his eighth Gold Glove, and the Cubs finished with a similar record to nineteen eighty-seven. 77 wins, which this year was good enough for fourth place. And in 1989, the Cubs finally get over the hump and win their division. Dawson was part of this NL East champ Cubs team. He had some injuries that limited him to only 118 games. His average dropped to 252, but he hit 21 homers, 77 RBIs in that limited playing time. He was again named to the All-Star team, joining Ryan Sandberg, Rick Sutcliffe, and Mitch Williams. And he, in this season, surpassed 2,000 hits and 300 home runs, all for a team that won 90 games. But unfortunately for Andre, his second appearance in the playoffs was disappointing. He went 2-for-19 with a double and three RBIs in the five-game series loss. And unfortunately, this would be Dawson's final playoff appearance and the last time that Dawson played for a winning team in Chicago. 1990 was the final year of his contract. He played in 147 games and had a great year at the plate, hitting a career-best 310 with 27 home runs and 100 RBIs. In a game on May 22nd, 1990, the Reds intentionally walked him five times. (laughs) He somehow didn't score or drive in a run, even though he also went one for three. But the Cubs did win the game 2-1 to in 16 innings. So that is eight plate appearances, six times on base. But his age was catching up with him in the field. He was at this point a below average right fielder. He still had a good arm, but his range was way down. He was valued at minus 2.3 defensive war, a far cry from Montreal where he was a plus two war center fielder a few times. He did earn himself another two-year contract. His last two seasons in Chicago, 91 and 92, in 91 he was solid. 272, 31 homers, another 100 RBI season, the only time in his career that he was back-to-back 100 RBI seasons. He made the All-Star game for the fifth straight season, and he had a a highlight in that All-Star game. Yeah, leading off the top of the fourth against Roger Clemens, he launched a ball off the window of the restaurant in center field at the Sky Dome. This ball must have gone 450 feet. As soon as the ball leaves his bat, Clemens knew it was gone, Ken Griffey Jr. just kind of looks up, walks back a little bit. The ball's gone. 
just a, a amazing home run uh, on the biggest stage at the All-Star Game. 1992 would be Dawson's final season with the Cubs. He was pretty good, but 37 years old at this point. He hit 277 with 22 home runs and 90 RBIs. And after that season, he was a free agent and he signed with the Red Sox. An AL team afforded Dawson the opportunity to play as a DH and, and to play at Fenway, a good hitter's park. He was at 2,500 hits and 399 home runs. If he stayed healthy, he thought maybe he could get to 3,000 hits, maybe even 500 home runs. That would require three or four 30 homer seasons, so <laughs> not sure if he could actually have gotten to 500 uh, with the amount of time that he had missed earlier in his career. He was okay his first year. He ends up hitting that 400th career home run. He hits 273 on the season. He had some injuries, tearing some cartilage in his knee, played in 121 games, played one more season in Boston, but his play was limited. His average was down, but he still hit 16 home runs in 75 games. After that season, he thought about retirement, but then had an offer from his hometown team, the Marlins. He went home for two more seasons where he was used pretty sparingly, and he retired after the 1996 season where he was used mostly as a pinch hitter. So closing the book on Andre Dawson, 21 seasons in the major leagues, batting average of 279. 2,774 hits, 438 home runs, 1,591 RBIs, and 314 stolen bases. He was the Rookie of the Year. He was MVP. He was an eight-time All-Star, four-time Silver Slugger, and eight-time Gold Glove winner. How about in retirement? Andre and his wife, Vanessa, have two kids, Darius and Amber. Dawson spent some time as a special assistant to the Marlins. He's also spent some time as a special assistant for the Cubs. And he's been active in relief efforts for Haiti and in promoting historically black colleges and universities with MLB. He's involved with the Andre Dawson Classic, an annual round-robin tournament with seven HBCU schools competing. The tournament has been going since 2008, and Dawson is actually only one of two players inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame from a historically black college. The other is Lou Brock. This tournament has helped some athletes get noticed and get drafted by MLB teams from schools that might fly under the radar and that aren't traditional baseball powerhouses. And I also heard, Matt, that the Hawk spends part of his time in retirement talking to your family members and past guests of this program. That is correct. My father-in-law, Bill, who was on the Mark Grace episode, was recently awarded Man of the Year by the Bastrop, Texas Chamber of Commerce. And as a congratulations, my wife and I sent him a cameo where Andre Dawson graciously sent Bill a congratulatory message. Uh, it was very inspiring. And yeah, the Hawk is just a great guy. Along with his cameos, Dawson has a very unique business interest. We asked for folks to guess the topic of this week's episode with memes. And listener Andrew at IHC underscore guy on Twitter sent an image with the caption, morticians, they really know how to party. And it had a, a series of people sitting around a table with a the legs of presumably a cadaver on it. And that's because Andre Dawson runs a funeral home. He's not just an investor in this Paradise Memorial funeral home. He is the funeral director full time. He and his wife, Vanessa, invested in funeral homes in 2009, had an opportunity to buy one. He mops the floors, vacuums, retrieves bodies, drives a hearse, 
when Jim Rice found out where Dawson was working, he said, You do what? <laughs> Ricky Henderson, like many people, just gaped. Sometimes people recognize him, but he didn't rename the business Andre Dawson's Funeral Home. He's just there to fill a need for the community. He said that COVID in the last couple of years has been incredibly difficult for him. There were times where they couldn't find enough caskets. They were running six funerals every Saturday. But Dawson kept working through the pandemic. Miami was hit hard and his community needed him. He said, I could have sold it. There were potential suitors. I saw how cutthroat that business could be, and I knew it was a service the community needed. It's not about me. It's about families during the worst times of their lives and being there and helping them get through the process. This is my calling. This is what God wants me to do. You know, most of these guys go into coaching. Dawson has done a little bit of coaching, but his day job is driving a hearse and consoling people in some of their worst moments. It's a very, it's a strange path for a a famous athlete who made 25 plus million dollars in his career. While it's unusual, it's not surprising the way that other players talked about him. But now let's talk about the Hall of Fame because he's in the Hall of Fame and he had a Hall of Stats ranking of 123. So according to the Hall of Stats, he's an automatic. What about that election to Cooperstown? When Ryan Sandberg was inducted into Cooperstown, Dawson wasn't yet. And he said in his induction speech, no player in baseball history worked harder, suffered more, or did better than Andre Dawson. He's the best I've ever seen. And at that point, Dawson isn't in, and it took a little while. He got 45.3% of the vote in his first ballot. And I think a lot of people did think Dawson was maybe on the bubble, an edge case here. When we look at it through modern stats and through the Hall of Stats, we think that his stats do line up. But I think that some people saw the injuries, saw that one huge season. But his stats in Montreal, while great, he missed a lot of time. So it took a, it took a while. It took nine years. He finally got in on the ninth ballot in 2010, and he was the only player from the writer's ballot inducted that year. I think like his MVP award, although some people thought he was a borderline Hall of Famer, I think most baseball fans are happy to see that the Hawk made it into Cooperstown. This is a guy who suffered so much. I saw the number 12 knee surgeries, then I saw the number 15 knee surgeries. He was in constant pain, constant medical attention, and he just kept going. He was taking opioids to keep his knees moving that are now banned by MLB just to make it through games. He said, I just continued to challenge myself to see how far I could go. Do I regret it now? Well, I've had three knee replacements. By my count, most people have two knees. (laughs) Dawson's had three of them replaced. He's one of only five players with 400 home runs and 300 steals. Sean Dunstan said if Andre didn't have bad knees, he would have finished with 600 home runs and 500 stolen bases. He definitely would have had 500 home runs if he didn't miss that much time. 600? I I think he could have done it. From 1977 to 88, he averaged 25 home runs and 23 steals. And that included some of those years where he didn't have functioning knees. And it included the strike-shortened 81 season. He might have been close to 600. If he had been able to play 162 games, those averages might have been closer to 30 and 30. This is a five-tool player putting it together for that stretch in the early 80s in Montreal. If he had done that in a bigger city, in a bigger market... He would have been the biggest name in baseball. He was hitting 300 with 25 homers, stealing 30 a year, all while winning gold gloves every season. And yet, as a kid growing up in Chicago, 
mostly watching American League Baseball, I didn't know anything about Andre Dawson before 1987. The rest of this stat line was just kind of a mystery. Montreal was just this far away, off post of baseball. Of course he was good, but like Montreal just wasn't at the top of my mind. He was coming off of some down years. So it's not like coming into that 87 season, people in Chicago were saying, we got the biggest player in baseball. And then he goes on to have this outstanding season. And then you add what he looked like at the plate. And if you're an eight-year-old watching WGN, we all tried to look like Andre Dawson and stare down, even though we were three feet tall, (laughs) (laughs) stare down the pitcher and crowd the plate and do the hawk stance. But Dawson was this quiet, thoughtful guy, and that look, that intense look, was also a look of intense determination, and the determination that gets a guy through 15 surgeries on his knees, the kind of guy who would take a pay cut to go play for the lovable losers in Chicago, and coming out of that 87 season, there's this picture that sticks in my mind, and the Chicago Times did a photo shoot for a poster, and this is like the top 80s Chicago kid poster. It was called Class for All Seasons, and it had three guys in tuxedos. Michael Jordan, who at this point is in his ascendancy. Walter Payton, who is the greatest running back of all time, on his way out of football. And Andre Dawson. 25 years later, the Tribune talked to the, the photographer about that day, and it's a guy named Mark Hauser, who took a lot of iconic photos of Dennis Rodman and, and other famous athletes, a lot of black and white photos. He took the cover photo for John Mellencamp's Scarecrow. Hauser said that Jordan and Peyton were joking around. Jordan's calling Peyton old man and as Peyton is about to retire. And Dawson just asked where he needs to stand, and he's quiet. He's kind of the new guy in town. He's not maybe used to the adulation and the fawning media coverage. When these three guys got in the room... Every news station in the city of Chicago was there taking pictures of this. And the photographer said, even though they joked around a lot, Michael Jordan had respect for Walter Payton. Walter Payton had respect for Michael Jordan. And Payton and Jordan both had respect for Andre Dawson. They knew how great Andre Dawson was. He didn't have the press and the coverage and the schmaltz that was all around them, but he had the essence of greatness. And as a kid, that iconic image of basically the two greatest athletes in the city of Chicago. And then you add in Andre Dawson. That puts him in the pantheon of all-time greats for my city. And we got to give Don Zimmer the last word here. He said, I don't think I ever managed a greater player or human being. That really does say it all. And makes sense to me after hearing it, why, why he would have sought out Chicago as a place to go to take a pay cut maybe knew that it would be a city and a team that would value him and would value what he brought and that there was a potential for greatness there. And there truly was a great player, a great person, a great story. Thank you, David, for the story today. And thank you to you at home. If your Nintendo game session has ever led to a bench clearing brawl, we'd love to hear about it all on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.